Italian Wine Podcast. Chin Chin with Italian Wine People. Hello, this is the Italian Wine Podcast with me, Monty Ward, and my guest today is Stephen Brook. Welcome, Stephen. Hello. Stephen, you have shared a path to wine elsewhere um, with us, but can you briefly tell our listeners um, how you got into wine and what it was that you were doing? Were you a publisher, travel writing, wine writer, whatever? What were you doing? Yeah, I was, at that time, we're talking about the early mid-80s, I was uh, doing a lot of work for a magazine, which is mostly a political magazine called The New Statesman, <laughs> and I was doing a lot of book reviewing, and uh, one day they asked me to do something on wine, and then uh, some months later they asked me to do something else on wine. I didn't know a great deal about it, but once you've got um, a post which allows you to call yourself a wine writer, you get invited to all the tastings, and in London there used to be three or four a day, so... Uh, um, I was a quick study and uh, <clears throat> loved the product. And um, after a while, I uh, moved on to Vogue and had a fairly regular column in Vogue. And I also had a commission for a book on sweet wines called Liquid Gold, uh, which won a prize or two. And so, you know, I, I was off and, and running, but I never intended to be a, a wine writer. Uh, I was mostly a travel writer. So when it comes to travel, um, you've written on California wines and you've judged in California at various wine competitions. Are you still in touch with um, friends and producers in the region? Yeah, yes, uh, well, in touch. Um, I was last there two years ago and, in fact, had dinner with uh, a producer called uh, Signorello. And um, two days later, the, uh, the building at the winery where we had uh, dinner together burned to the ground because of the fires of that, uh, of that time. Um, I haven't been back since, but I do stay in touch with the California wines and go to lots of tastings. And on Monday, I tasted over 80 California Cabernets uh, for decanter uh, with some colleagues. So, uh, no, I do try and keep my hand in. But, you know, this, uh, things change so fast in the wine world, it's very difficult to keep up. And I wish I had the opportunity to, to get back there more often. Mm-hmm. And you're also, just in, in parentheses, you're, in that, you're in sort of an expert in, in lots of fields in wine, a real deep knowledge. It's not just that, um, um, talking about California, also you have a deep interest in Austria and various other areas as well. Um, so in, in terms of Italian wine, you've obviously got expertise uh, in Italy. And you do come to Italy often. Um, is that still the case? Oh, I wish it were. I mean, I used to go just even, just even a couple of years ago uh, to Italy about six times a year. I would judge wine competitions there and uh, attend uh, events and also go off with my own itinerary to research an article. Of course, that, that's now ground to a halt. I mean, I should have been on two or three trips to Italy over the spring. Um, they were all cancelled for obvious reasons. And I'm dying to get back, but but who knows? It's very difficult to plan ahead. So um, uh, I really hope that I'll be able to get back next year, but I doubt there'll be many opportunities before then. What are your What are your favourite regions in terms of not just uh, wine, but just being there? You know, cuisine, landscape. Well, I, I love Piemonte, um, the, partly for the cuisine uh, and the magnificent wines, which are getting better from year to year. Um, that, I, I love most parts of Italy, actually. I mean, Sicily is is fascinating. Uh, 
usually I'm there twice a year. Um, I'm, I'm not so keen on the varieties like Primitivo from the from the south, and maybe I'm more sort of temperate climate. I prefer wines from uh, well, I like Campania. Not that it's a cool region particularly, but of course there's some wonderful whites there. Um, Tuscany, of course. Though I tend to like the simpler wines from from Tuscany. Um, uh, Drink happily a Rosso di Montalcino, where you're based, or uh, just a Chianti Classico, rather than some of the grander, more expensive expressions. Um, I, I, I love the freshness and juiciness of, of uh, good Tuscan Sangiovese. And, of course, wines from uh, Friuli and um, you, you, you name it. There's hardly a corner of uh, Italy where you don't find worthwhile wines. Yeah, I'm absolutely with you with your views on um, the Brunello versus Rosso. I mean, Rosso is tremendously undervalued, both in terms of uh, money, but also in terms of just enjoyability and drinkability. Um, when, do you, when, do you see you, when do you see yourself next in Italy? Well, I'm hoping to be there for, if it takes place, of course, for Nebbiolo Prima, which is usually in January. <clears throat> of course, it's a fantastic showcase for Barolo, Barbaresco, and Roero, and it's a blind tasting. And in the evenings, there tend to be convivial dinners with producers and older vintages. It, it's a great event. I learn a great deal, and it gives me the chance to write up the, the wines for uh, for Decanter. I mean, you're a great expert on Bordeaux as well. I mean, you're a great expert on many, many things, but just what, what are the differences in your view uh, on Prima in versus, you know, Bordeaux versus somewhere in Italy. What are the differences um, as, as a journalist, as a, as a wine writer? Well, I don't go to, I've given up on, on Prima. Um, my views are well known that it's, um, it's a bit crazy to assess wines that haven't even, have only just gone into barrel and have another year to go and maybe fine, filtered, re-blended. And then you know, to give those wines a score is just daft. But, of course, enormous commercial interest writing on that. And um, it's, uh, it's a system that works beautifully for the, the producers and for the wine trade in Bordeaux, perhaps not quite so well for the consumers who end up paying just as much on Primeur as they would be paying a couple of years later when the wines are actually on the shelves and they can taste them for themselves. Um, not sure you can make a comparison with, with Italy. There isn't quite the same system. Um, but speaking for myself, I, I like to taste either wines that are bottled or wines that are just about to be bottled. So the big anti-prima tastings, you're not really tasting wines on Primeur. You're tasting wines that are essentially finished and mostly in bottle. And that, for me, is a much better system. Yeah, here, here, I totally agree with that. Um, now, you recently tasted and reviewed the wines of uh, Pio Cesare. Do you see the rise of the Menzioni Geografiche Aggiuntivi, or MGAs, and single vineyard selections as benefiting consumers uh, in terms of what they can expect from these specific denominations? Oh, how long have you got, Monty? <laughs> um, no, basically, I mean, I'm in favor of the system. Uh, wines do have a sense of place. Um, vineyards are very specific in Morolo and Bavaresco. And um, if you've got a choice plot in Canubi or wherever, um, uh, Brico, Ambrogio, then why not uh, put it on the label? The confusion arises because there are still uh, fantasy names. Um, 
on the label. I think consumers have difficulty between differentiating between a, a fantasy name, which is perfectly legitimate, it's just a brand after all, and a, a single vineyard uh, mention. I know there are ways on the label that you should be able to decipher which is which, but for the average consumer, that's uh, a, a, not an easy task. But I think it's a positive trend. But I think people have to bear in mind that although uh, the, the Lange models itself a bit on uh, on Burgundy rather than Bordeaux. The vineyards are by no means the same. Bordeaux is uh, sorry, Burgundy is essentially one long slope um, with a difference of elevation of maybe two hundred meters at the most. In um, Barolo, Barbaresco, you've got all these different changes of, of elevation and rapidly changing soil types. So you can have a prestigious name on the on the label, and uh, no, Rabaya, Cerequio, but there can be enormous variations within each vineyard. So I think to, uh, to to say, you know, this is an absolutely top vineyard and X is a rather mediocre vineyard can be a bit misleading. So I think, you ha- and you also have to take into account the uh, the skill of the, the growers and winemakers. So it's a very, very complicated subject, but Broadly speaking, I think it's a positive trend to identify a sense of place or help the consumers identify a sense of place. Yeah, it's also a talking point, isn't it? It's an argument, both the intellectual arguments that journalists have, but also, you know, just friends who aren't in the wine industry, maybe having a dinner together um, and bringing two bottles just for fun. And uh, I think it's a good idea as well. I think um, it just makes wine a little bit more interesting and more, more talking points. Now, what has Decanter done in terms of competitions this year? Well, the Decanter World Wine Awards successfully judged 17,000 wines um, last month. And I was part of the uh, tasting team. I, I run the Piemonte uh, panel. And uh, we had, I don't know, close to 500 wines. And of course, um, Tremendous precautions were, were taken in terms of um, not just social distancing, but um, no tasters would touch a, a bottle and no pourer would touch our glasses. We put out our own glasses and numbered them. So it was all um, very strictly controlled to make sure that um, there was no possibility of infection. And it worked extremely well. Um, because the offices were largely empty, there's lots of space. So social distancing was no problem at all. Um, but uh, I, I think it was miraculous, actually, to be able to taste 17,000 wines in the middle of a pandemic. Um, but normally there's a competition that, that is over in one week, but this was spread over the best part of four weeks. Yes, it was five days, wasn't it? I, mean, I think they were very clever in the fact that they let the judges come over a period of a month, um, I think I'm right in saying, to... Uh, to uh, taste at their leisure and, and when, they, when they could safely get to and from wherever they were going to. They're coming from in London. I, mean, I, I was invited, but I just didn't go um, to do my Tuscany this year because I, was, I didn't want to get caught with the quarantining 14 days. Quarantine, I exactly, I understand that. Yeah. We, we don't normally mention Boris Johnson on the podcast, but and also didn't trust the Prime Minister. <laughs> well, I think you're right there. Okay, so next question. Um, at least one educator at Vinicelli International is dying to hear about your cat or cats. And is it true, are they named after wines? Not really. Uh, my first cat, at least of modern times, was called Phylloxera. And uh, she actually had her photograph in uh, Decanter magazine many years ago. We're talking about at least 20 years ago. And one of my 
prison cats, um, Angelo. Um, my wife decided to name that particular cat, and she claims that he was named after Angelo Gaia. And I did tell Angelo this, and he, uh, Angelo Gaia, that is, and he roared with laughter. But I think he got the wrong end of the stick and thought that I just had a, a child or a grandchild that had been named Angelo. I didn't dare tell him it was actually just a, a cat, so I kept quiet about that. I've now broken the silence, of course, and he'll never speak to me again. But there we go. Well, we won't. We won't. Uh, we'll block his um, radio. <laughs> Drop his account. Yeah. <laughs> You've written um, on producers off the beaten track here in my hometown, or not hometown, home region of Tuscany. What are the what are some of the lesser areas of um, lesser known areas in Tuscany or Italy overall? Well, I went to uh, Valdano last year, which was new to me. I mean, the wines weren't new to me, but um, they weren't called Valdano 10, 20 years ago. And the excellent estates there, you know, Il, Il Boro and Petrolo, and and the, some of those wines are absolutely splendid. Um, just remind us exactly where that area of Tuscany is. Hmm, that's a good question. It's, it's south of Florence, south southeast of Florence, if I remember correctly. Um, and Carmignano, which is just uh, to the west of Florence, also a very interesting area, which I visited in detail about uh, uh, five or six years ago because of the inclusion of uh, uh, Cabernet Sauvignon in the in the blend, along with Sangiovese and other varieties, and. Uh, I haven't tasted them in a while, but I used to uh, adore some of the wines from Elba, the Aliatico, the sweet red wines. And nobody ever talks about those. You never see them on the shelves, at least not in this country. But they, they can be delicious. And I think Vino Nobile is uh, a bit undervalued. There is a certain rusticity there that you don't get in Chianti Classico, at least not usually. Uh, but at their best, I think the wines are terrific and they have great staying power. So I think it's a, a region to keep an eye on. So you are you are a prolific writer. Um, do you have a current project in the works at the moment? I, I do, I do. I'm uh, been asked to uh, um, write a new edition. That'll be the fourth edition of my book, the complete Bordeaux. It's half a million words on on Bordeaux wines. Um, uh, unfortunately, it's almost impossible to to travel to France at the moment. So uh, the, the research is somewhat on hold, but I am tasting a, a lot of wines and I hope at least in the spring to be able to get over there safely and get back safely. Um, but I'm, I'm very excited about this uh, possibility because um, I'd rather thought that um, I wouldn't be writing any more books and hey presto, here's an, a new commission and um, just gasping to have the opportunity to fulfil it. Why, why did you think you wouldn't get any more book commissions? Um, age? Um, How old are you? Don't mind me asking. No, not at all. I'm 73. So, um, well, you don't look, you know, you, uh, and you don't act it either. Well, that's very kind of you, but, but I am. I don't feel it either, but uh, at the same time, you know, there are newer, younger faces around, and uh, it's only to be expected that they should be uh, clamouring for attention and commissions and so on. So um, each time I write a book, I, I think it's going to be the last one, but then something else pops up, which I'm delighted about. I mean, your, your writing style is very, um, it's very, very clear. You're very clear where you stand. You're very clear about when you describe places or, or vineyards or people um, or even little bits of history that you throw in as well. You're, you're, you're a very easy reader to like um, for somebody who's studying, whether it's an MW or a, or a BS student or whatever, and that's... Um, one thing that I really like about your your work um, on the written page, and as a judge, when I judge with you, 
um, you're incredibly consistent and fair, and um, and also you you don't get into kind of debate debates with people. You just say, well, look, you asked me what I thought. This is what I thought, and and there we go. And I think that's a great um, way of approaching that kind of thing where. Um, people's opinions can get sometimes can get sometimes heated, and I think you're a really fantastic role model for people in the industry on both of those counts. I just have to say that that's what I think. That's, that's very kind of you, Marty. Very kind. You've written books on opera. You have a you have a you have a hinterland, which is also quite rare in the wine industry. Just briefly, why why did you, how did we get into opera, and why do you enjoy it so much? Um, I was taken to the opera by my parents to Covent Garden at the age of eight to see Aida, and I've been going back ever ever since. And I even uh, <clears throat> picked up my uh, present wife at the opera at Covent Garden. So I have very close ties to, <laughs> to opera. And I haven't actually written a book about opera, but I have um, compiled an anthology of uh, operatic uh, anecdotes and histories. So um, I am very fond of it. And my wife and I still go as often as we can. But at the moment, as you know, everything is pretty much shut down. So again, we're waiting patiently for things to get back to normal. Um, but no, I, I've written, I, I, you've, you, I bet you don't know this, Monty. I, I've written a book on the Salvation Army. Um, I didn't know. <laughs> it, it was a television series um, on Channel 4 in this country, which was going to be on the Salvation Army. And the, uh, the, the, the producers needed a book, and they needed it fast to be written within four weeks. And uh, so I was, I, I volunteered to do it. And I, actually, I ended up with enormous respect for the Salvation Army and the people I met there. But that, anyway, that's another story. But just explain to people that don't know offshore what is the Salvation Army in a nutshell. It's an evangelical uh, Christian, um, what would you call it? Um, it's, it's, not, it's not actually a church, um, but it's... It's not an army either, so uh, certainly not, not not an army, but but people do have they they wear uniforms. This was founded in the late nineteenth uh, century and it's still going strong. They do a lot of charity work. Um, they are marvellous at helping people who are really at the end of their rope. Uh, they're non-judgmental. Uh, I was very impressed by them, and they all live on minimal salaries and with hardly a complaint. And um, as I say, I have developed a lot of uh, affection and respect for them. Yeah, well, it's a good fit for you because their values are very much like your values. Oh, well, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say that. I, I certainly don't have a vow of poverty. <laughs> no, I understand that, but I mean in terms of, um, in terms of you know, just doing, doing what you can and, and helping people out when they're, when they're having in a little bit of difficulty. And, uh, and uh, you know, you're a great mentor as well to, to younger people in the trade, really, um, a really great example. And um, you lead by example, both with the quality of your work and how you go about things. So That's very kind. I know you've said this to me before. I'm not, not aware of myself as a mentor. I, I've, um, I, I can only think of the people I, I've looked up to in the past and who I consider my mentors. <laughs> but I've never thought of it the other way around. But as you say, I'm, I, I'm 73 now, so I suppose I'm getting into that age bracket to be a mentor. It's very exciting. <laughs> okay. <laughs> anyway, listen, I want to say thanks to you, Stephen, Stephen Brook, a prolific, Great pleasure. prolific wine writer, man of huge uh, modesty and also integrity and uh, ridiculous amounts of knowledge 
And um, it's been a real pleasure to chat to you today, Stephen. And I wish you a continued success with whatever it is that comes next on your to-do list. Good. And I hope I see you in a, a tasting room or a wine event before too long. Likewise. Thanks, Stephen. Hey, thanks, Monty. Bye. Bye. Listen to the Italian Wine Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We're on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Himalaya FM, and more. Don't forget to subscribe and rate the show. If you enjoy listening, please consider donating through italianwinepodcast.com. Any amount helps cover equipment, production, and publication costs. Until next time, cin cin.